invite you to turn in your scriptures with me to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 2, continuation on from this morning, and you can find the short little book of Ruth just after Judges, Joshua Judges Ruth, before 1 Samuel, page 283. And we'll also, uh, after we read from Ruth 2, we'll turn over to Leviticus 19 as well. This is God's word. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men who was the young man who was in the charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in, in your eyes that you should take notice of me? I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me of how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it to her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of 
barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, lest another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. If we just turn back a number of pages, page 124, and we'll be referring to this somewhat, Leviticus chapter 19. We'll read verses 9 to 10, and then 33 to the end of the chapter. So verse 9 of Leviticus chapter 19, page 124. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you glean, gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And then verse 33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you too were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, no measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all my statutes and my rules, and do them. I am the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Dear congregation, our text will be the entire chapter of Ruth chapter 2. I'd like to just read again verse 12 and 13. This is from the words of Boaz. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she, Ruth, said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Congregation loved by our Lord and by our Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of Ruth 
is a book about Ruth, but more importantly, it's a book about Jesus. And it's a book about our times, because our times and our lives desperately need Jesus, our Savior. This morning, we had the opportunity to explore some of the themes of chapter 1, and we examined, we saw how Ruth is a portrait of faith. She's a young woman, a courageous, valiant woman, who is going to do something that requires a tremendous amount of risk of faith, because she will leave her family, her mother, her father, her culture, any degree of security that she might have, and she's going to do something that might seem even dangerous, risky. She's going to leave it all behind to go with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who really doesn't have much to offer her at this point of time, and go to a land where she will likely be misunderstood, marginalized, even ridiculed, because she's not one of them. But she has enough understanding about Yahweh, about the God that her mother-in-law worships, to know that the Lord will look after her and that God's people should look after her. So she does a U-turn. This is a picture of repentance because she gets off the wrong road, the road to Moab of idolatry and debauchery, of the worship of a false god, false gods, and she gets on the right road. The road to the land of promise, of Emmanuel's land, of God's land, the promised land. It's a call for all of us to live in gospel faith, to repent daily, to get off the wrong road of living for self, and to get on the right road of living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this weighty decision, Ruth is a type of Christ, because in a sense she goes into exile, She goes into exile for one whom she loves dearly, for one whom she pledges loyalty and fidelity, Naomi. And in the same way, our Lord Jesus Christ went into exile. He left the pleasures of heaven for the pain of earth, the glory of heaven for the gore of earth. He went into exile to save the ones whom the Father has called him to save. And he does this out of love and fidelity Ruth is a type of Christ. She's a picture of the work of Jesus, who will be her great-great-great-great-great-grandson. Boaz, a character we will meet in chapter 2, is also a type of Christ. He's also a portrait of Jesus. Because he is going to redeem Ruth and Naomi from a very, very bad situation. And this is really articulated in chapters 3 and 4. And... I won't be with you for chapters 3 and 4, but we have enough in chapter 2 to to get a foretaste of how uh, Boaz will act as a redeemer, how he will redeem these two women who are very vulnerable, very destitute, from a very bad situation to give them new life and new hope. He's going to do this by being a goel, a kingsman redeemer. And what we also... A witness in chapter 2 is the character and the conduct of Boaz. And this is really very important because Boaz is a type of Christ. He, he is a foreshadowing of Jesus in what kind of man he is. He's a man of tremendous integrity. He's a man of tremendous compassion and generosity, particularly as he goes beyond 
the letter of the law and understands the spirit of the law to protect the vulnerable and provide for the destitute. And he does this in a, in a beautiful way. He is a man of grace. And his presence creates a culture of grace, even I could say a sociology of grace. And we see that as he interacts with his workers and also as he deals with Ruth and also Naomi. And this is important today because we need role models. We need role models in the church today of what it means to be a man of grace, a woman of grace. As we receive God's grace, we also breathe out grace. We are instruments of grace. He is a, a tremendous man of kindness, and he goes beyond the call of duty to demonstrate kindness to someone he doesn't owe it to, but he does because of the calling that the Lord has put upon his life. So there is a Redeemer. That's our sermon title. There is a Redeemer. As we look at Boaz, and he's a foreshadowing of the work, and also the character of Jesus. As we work through this passage, as we explore it together, we'll, we'll see his work of Redeemer as he exemplifies a manifestation, of, really, of God's providence. He, he provides providence. As we think about providence, God provides. He's going to be providing for Ruth. We see this in verses 1 to 10. Also, we will witness the commitment of God's faithfulness, verses 11 to 12. And then lastly, the security of God's provision verses 13 to 23. So God's providence, God's faithfulness, and God's provision we witness in this wonderful chapter of Ruth, chapter 2. First of all, God's providence to provide a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer. And we meet Boaz, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Well, right away, we, we learn three things about this man. First of all, he is a relative of Naomi, or more, uh, more accurately, he's a, a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's former husband. He's a kinsman, which simply means he's from the same clan. So uh, similar to we might think about our families, uh, broader, uh, it's bigger than a family, smaller than a tribe, it's a clan. And the word relative suggests a possible covenant tie which means that Boaz will have some moral obligation to help. However, at this time, in the days of the judges, because the people of God have not been observing Torah as much as they should, he's got the license to take or leave the obligation. He's got some moral obligation, but will he really fulfill the obligation that he can oblige himself. So understand, he's not a complete stranger. He's known to Naomi, and he's, in, he be, he's a re, uh, relative to Elimelech. Thirdly, this is very important, he's a man of standing. Uh, it's really well put how the ESV translates it. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Other translations will say he was a wealthy man, and that's very true, but it's, it's more than just that he had money <laughs> and land he was a, a rich farmer. He was a worthy man. He was a man of stature. He was a man who was worthy because of his character. A man of substance, actually, other translations will say. And even his name signifies this. Boaz literally means a man, a mighty man of strength. In him is strength. That's what we learned about Boaz. 
This is just a, a foretaste of some more wonderful things we'll learn about him. In verse 2, we, we read about Ruth, and the text is, reminds us she's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She's from Moab, meaning she doesn't belong, quote-unquote, in Bethlehem. She's different. She's from a different people, a different religion. She's a foreigner. And again, as we noticed this morning, this makes her even more vulnerable. She's vulnerable because she's a widow. But in a sense, she's even more vulnerable than Naomi because she's not an Israelite. She's a Moabitess. How will the Israelite men treat this foreigner who is vulnerable and who is destitute? Will they treat her like they're supposed to treat her as they're told in Leviticus chapter 9? She's a sojourner. She's a stranger. Will they love the stranger? Or will they forget that they were once strangers in the land of Egypt? They were once sojourners. And so will they have a sense of entitlement and not care about this stranger? Well, we'll see how Boaz will be a positive example to his men and to his community of how to love the stranger. Ruth desperately needs grace. She needs to find favor. And as we think about grace, let's define grace in this way. Unmerited favor from an unobligated giver. Unmerited favor from an unobligated giver. Ruth will receive favor, although she doesn't merit it. She merit it. She doesn't perform for it. She doesn't earn it. She will find favor. And she acknowledges that she has found favor in the sight of Boaz. And she, she can't believe it. Boaz is unobligated to, to bestow favor, grace upon her. He doesn't have to, but he does. And brothers and sisters, as we think about the gospel of grace, unmerited favor from an unobligated giver, this is us and this is God because he has no obligation to save us, no obligation to be kind to us, and we have done nothing to deserve his kindness. Rather, we've probably done everything possible to make it impossible for God to save us. But God of the impossible does the wonderful thing of providing a redeemer to us, although we have sinned against his majesty. Again, Ruth is a, described as a Moabitess, a Moabite. It's repeated seven times in this chapter. Uh, the writer Ruth does not want us to forget. She's a foreigner. She's a Moabitess. And again, that's significant because she's not a Judean. She's not an Israelite. And so she desperately needs for her own survival to have somebody in the land of Bethlehem to have compassion upon her. And that's important for even understanding the fact that Naomi permits Ruth to go out into the fields and glean. You ask the question, is this faith or is this folly, even that Naomi allows Ruth to go out. Ruth is asking that she can go out and glean in the fields, basically take up the leftovers of, of the harvest that isn't uh, picked up. This is the time of the judges, where every man did what was right in his own eyes. Even the judges themselves were often not honorable Israelites. It's a, it's a brutal, chaotic time in the history of Israel, physically and even spiritually. 
we don't know if Ruth is even going to be safe. Will she be assaulted physically, sexually? Will she be taken advantage of? We don't know. Naomi doesn't know. This just demonstrates how vulnerable, how poor these women are. They need food to eat. So they will tra- take tremendous risk, even at, maybe at their own lives, particularly for Ruth. Naomi is safe in terms of her life in order to do this. It reminds us again, brothers and sisters, of the many, many vulnerable women and children in our societies today uh, who, 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 who live in fear because of their destitution. But she has sense. And so she goes. I, I think we have to see, again, the courage of Ruth here. She is not a weak character by any means. She is very determined. Verse 3, so she set out and went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Bethlehem. Now what's significant here is to understand this work of gleaning. And this is why I read from, for you from Leviticus chapter 19. In the law code of Israel that God had given to his people, those that farmed the land were particularly instructed to leave some of the produce in the field for those that are impoverished so that they could glean. Leviticus 19, 9-10, again, When you reap the harvest of your field, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 24, 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. This is what God has commanded to his people as he wants them to constitute a society of, of equity and of fairness and of justice. When you go and harvest, don't take all of it home. If you've forgotten some uh, sheaves back in the field, oh, I forgot, I forgot that part. Don't go back to get it. Allow the poor, allow those that don't have land, that don't have access to the sustenance to go and, and reap. And actually it says here, um, don't even, you know, reap the, the corners of the field. Allow the people who are very needy to come and take some of your grain. Now, this might be bad business practices if you're a greedy person. You know, I want to get everything I can get. I'm not going to let one, one bit of barley get to anybody. I'm going to capitalize on every bit I can get. That's not how God wants his people to live. The mark of a covenant people, the people of God, is that because God has been generous with them, that should overflow in their generosity with others. So God is very clear that he wants them to be very distinct and different from the other heathen nations where it's just about getting the most that I can get. So it's a very beautiful law because it reminds them that everything that they have received is from the Lord and as they have been recipients of God's generosity, they simply need to be generous themselves. So God is calling his people to take care 
of the orphan, the, the, the fatherless, the widow, the destitute. And brothers and sisters, this is Ruth. As I said this morning, this is equivalent to uh, an undocumented worker, uh, maybe even worse in, in terms of her vulnerability as a Moabitess in, in Israel. She is poor, she's an alien. And this gleaning, I don't have any romantic notions. Oh, I get to pick some grain on a nice day. I think when we see images from the third world of destitute people picking through the garbage in these gigantic landfills, just the destitution, just trying to find a bit of food or a little bit of copper wire to melt and sell, this is the sort of situation that these women find themselves in. But Ruth knows enough about Yahweh, about her mother-in-law's God, and enough about the law of Yahweh, of God's people, to the extent that God's people should allow her to reap. And that she should be able to take something home after working hard. So she's exercising faith that Israel is who she is meant to be. Again, I want to remind you of the disparity cultural disparity between Israel and, and Moabite in this, in this time. Israelites did not like the Moabites at all, and their history was very, very bad. And this is not a foregone conclusion that the Israelite men in the field are going to be kind and generous and protective of Ruth in the days of the judges. But remember that the people of God, the church, always shines when she is generous when she goes above the ladder of the law, but rather the spirit of the law and generosity. We read about this in the early church, don't we, in Acts chapter 4. The generosity of God is so powerful that in this new covenant people, there are no needy persons around them, which was bewildering to the Romans and the Greeks because their culture was, was very selfish. It was, it was, you know, you get to the top, you... You achieve power and prestige, and you can just manipulate and use anybody underneath you. But here you have these Christians, and all the social distinctions are gone. That the rich are fellowshipping with the poor. They're eating together. The slaves are allowed to dine with the free men and women. There was no one needy among them. And so Ruth is really counting that someone's going to be kind toward her. And the Lord, remember from this morning, the Lord is the, the actor, the primary hero in the book of Ruth. And it says in verse 3, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Actually, in the Hebrew, uh, the writer uses very strong language. Um, she chanced upon. She happened, she chanced upon, even one translation, by sheer luck she came to the field allocated to Boaz. Now, the writer of Ruth doesn't believe in luck, doesn't believe in chance. Of course not. But the strong use of this sort of she chanced by luck is just indicating that she did not predetermine, she did not calculate, oh, where's Boaz's field? She, and go to Boaz's field. She just so happened, of all the fields she goes to, she goes to Boaz's field. And God is working. God is working even in this little subconscious decision she makes to go to this field. So we see the plan of God's providence. The Lord provides. 
In verse 4, it says, Now behold, Boaz, lo and behold, of all people, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. We meet the Redeemer. This is Boaz. And he is a model Israelite, even in the dark days of the judges. And the first words from his mouth suggest he's a noble man. Isn't it great how he, he treats his employees? He said to the reapers, these are the men that work for him, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. What a great boss. We're going to see this. He's a model employer. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Again, in a culture where if you get to the top, top position, you can treat anybody underneath you with as much disdain or lack of disdain as you want. That's not how he treats. He treats his workers with tremendous respect and care, and he models a Christian man, a proper Israelite man. And he inquires about this young woman. Whose young woman is this? And so his servant who's in charge, the foreman on the job, gives him the whole backstory. He says, she's the young Moabite woman who came with Naomi from the country of Moab. She asked, can I glean? And we let her glean, and this is what's happened. And he says, she's incredibly a hard worker. She hasn't taken a break. Or maybe, there's actually some debate on this. Did she take a little break or no break? But probably saying, she worked a lot harder than my guys. This is an amazing, strong, and hard-working woman. Again, I want you to see Boaz. There's this atmosphere of grace all around him. He exudes grace. An atmosphere of holiness pervades him. And he's already showing care to Ruth, the Moabitess, whose reputation has preceded her in terms of the fact she's come from Moab. She doesn't belong in Israel. But he's very curious. And brothers and sisters, just want to pause here, and before we look more at Boaz, to see this is an example of a godly man. He is a true Israelite. And sadly, we don't have as many, you know, as many good examples of perhaps what it means to be a godly man or godly woman as maybe we should. What is, what is our culture, what does the spirit of the age tell us of what it means to be a man? Well, it's to be strong. It's to be self-made to be a, a macho man, to be cavalier, to get to the top. Is that the biblical definition of a man? To be a tough guy, to get strength and use strength for me? It's not. It's not. See, Boaz is described here in Scripture as a mighty man of strength. He's a worthy man. But already we can see that he doesn't use his position and power in order to exalt himself. But rather he is using his position and power for the good of others. And immediately we see that he's gracious. The Lord be with you. This is how he enters the office with his guys. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. He has created a culture of grace, a sociology of grace, even with his workers. And I think what we see in Boaz is an example of, of meekness. Meekness. Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek. 
Who is a meek person? See, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength channeled for good. You might think I grew up loving the Black Stallion books, and almost all the stories are the same, but they would take a horse from the wild, this powerful, strong horse, and then some lad would catch it and then tame it. And so all that strength, which was sort of used violently or out of control, would be used for good, and the Black Stallion horses always won the race. And that's what meekness is. Power, not just raw power channeled for destruction, but power channeled for good. Brothers and sisters, this is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, isn't it? He is God. He came from heaven. And he uses all his power in self-sacrifice for the good of his people. He's meek. It's, what is a gentle man? It's power under control. And sadly, even the word gentleman is sort of obscured in our culture today. A gentle man, meek and lowly. See, Jesus is not trigger-happy. He's not a bully using his strength to hurt others. He is the most understanding person in the universe. He's not easily exasperated. He is not reactionary. But his movement toward people is sympathy and understanding and compassion. That's the example. Brothers and sisters, as we find ourselves in this unique situation of COVID-19, and as we have differing, probably differing opinions about different things, as there's a lot of angst and anger in the spirit of our age. We need to remember that as Christians, there is never a reason to be unkind. As Christians, we have to be examples of what it means to be people of integrity and gentleness and kindness, even especially if we disagree. I think that's what the type of man Boaz is foreshadowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so may the Lord give us this sort of grace to be these sort of people at this time because this is what the world needed in Ruth's time. A man like Boaz, an upstanding man, an example in his community. This is what our culture desperately needs today. And so Boaz is wanting to help. And so he receives information about Ruth. And he realizes, learns that she can't take care of herself. She lives with her mother-in-law, and she's destitute. In the next scene, we have Boaz speaking to Ruth. Hearst words, Now listen, my daughter, this is verse 8. Do not go to glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. This is the mechanics of grace at work and motivated not by duty but by compassion. Boaz already is instructing Ruth what, for what she can do in order to have her needs met. And he is full of grace. Again, foreshadowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, John 1, verse 14. 
who will be Boaz's great-great-great-great-grandson, who is himself full of grace and truth. He is full of grace and truth. Ruth is not expecting this benevolence. He's, Boaz is offering to protect her and to provide for her, providing for her physical needs. She can drink, providing for needs of guardianship, protection. And what does Ruth do? Verse 10. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me. I'm a foreigner. Grace, unmerited favor from an unobligated giver. She knows Boaz is not obligated, and she knows she has not merited anything. I'm a foreigner. I'm from Moab. Boaz, I'm from Moab. I'm a nobody. I don't belong here. Boaz, don't you understand how, what you're doing? This is beyond what I can imagine anybody could do. See, she's amazed. She knows she's not entitled to anything. She has no right. She's a stranger in the land. And so she's melted. And brothers and sisters, this is us. We are enemies of God in our sin. We are strangers in the land. We have done everything possible to make it impossible for God to save us. We're not entitled. We are without hope and without God in the world, Ephesians 2, verse 12. We must not presume grace. You can't presume grace at all. And maybe, maybe her reaction is a little bit over the top. She bows down. She's at his feet. But I think she's just so moved by what has just happened. Again, so much has gone so, t- uh, so, so badly for her and Naomi. And immediately, things are just coming together. And what you need to see, brothers and sisters, is that sometimes the Lord provides for other people in providing people. <laughs> he provides Boaz. That Boaz is an instrument of grace. He is going to help Ruth in a time of need. And isn't it wonderful to be a Boaz? To be able to help somebody in this tangible way? This is what the Lord is calling us to. And so, again, we see the provision of God in his providence, and God provides Boaz, a wealthy, an upstanding, a worthy man, to go beyond the letter of the law, but to understand the spirit of the law. And he is just the redeemer that these two ladies are going to need. We see the Lord being faithful, again, in verses 11 to 12. And, and again, if you're thinking really good about Boaz, yeah, he gets better as the story goes. He knows that Ruth has been the talk of Bethlehem. They've been talking about Ruth in the Bethlehem coffee shops. But this Moabite woman, and she is gaining respect of what she did and the hard decisions she made. And Boaz knows about her, of how she gave everything up. She is still vulnerable. She's an asylum seeker. Uh, and yet she's devoted and courageous. 
She knows the price that Ruth has paid to leave her whole family and everything behind. I know how you've left it all behind, and you've come to a people you do not even know. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. So her faith, the story, the testimony of her faith, is already getting around Bethlehem. And he says, Under whose wings you have come to take refuge, may a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He doesn't know exactly yet how he's actually going to be the agent of these wings of the Lord, but this is an important metaphor, the wings of God. And it's really a word picture of protection. Later on, when Ruth asks Boaz to marry her, she's going to be asking uh, for the wings of his garment to be over her. And and this is an expression that the Lord has used. And again, it's not hard to to see it as you think of an eagle uh, protecting her eaglets with her powerful wings. Same way the Lord spreads his wings over his children as an eagle spreads her wings over her eaglets to protect and provide for them. Deuteronomy 32, Moses says, As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on his wings, as the Lord alone has led him. Exodus 19, verse 4. Moreover, the Lord himself compares, sorry, Exodus 19, verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Boaz blesses Ruth, the sense of saying, may the Lord find favor on you because of your faith. And may the wings of God come over you to protect you. He's bestowing upon her the best well wishes you could have. But Boaz himself will be the means of that guardianship and of that protection. And this becomes secure, and this is what we see in the last part, the security of God's provision, verses 13 to 23. And she says, in verse 13, she uses the word grace. Again, I found favor in your eyes. I found grace in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. You've been kind to me. I'm not even one of your servants, Boaz. I don't know if you know this. I'm not on your staff. I'm not one of your employees. You don't owe me anything. Again, I'm a nobody. You've been, you've gone over the top, Boaz, to demonstrate care for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Boaz gets better. At mealtime, Boaz says to her, come here and eat some bread and drink. Dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. So his provision goes on and on. He allows her to glean. He protects her from harm, gives her water to drink, gives her a more than sufficient meal to the point there is some left over. Very similar to when Jesus fed the 5,000 with two barley loaves, uh, barley loaves and fish, sorry. Uh, How much was left over? 12 basketfuls left over. More than enough. It's just simply a picture of the extravagance of God, the superabundant grace of God, uh, exceedingly more than we could think or ask or imagine. Boaz makes sure that Ruth has some extra to bring home. 
He's not meager. He's not cheap. He's not misly. He's benevolent because he knows God has been good and benevolent to him. It gets even better because then he commands his men, verse 12, let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So this is boundless. So he's telling his guys, okay guys, uh, pick some extra grain, pick some stalks, and just don't leave it there for her. Actually, uh, set some aside for her. I want you to purposely, intentionally pick some for her and set it aside so she can pick it up. So again, these employees of Boaz love Boaz, and they're, I think, thrilled at what Boaz is doing. And you can just picture them setting aside the barley, the sheaves, and, and telling Ruth, Ruth, there's some over there. There's some more over there. Ruth, don't forget that. And they're participating in this generosity. One commentator says this, there's the emphasis on the extra, the more than required. Boaz will prove to be the one who can give more than what's legally required. That's what you need to see here, congregation, that Boaz is doing much more than what even the Levitical law demanded. He's going above and beyond He's not a legalist. That's, what I'm, that's the point here. He's not saying, okay, I'm going to do exactly what the law says. No, the Levitical law says you need to be generous with the sojourner and kind to the destitute and look after them. He's going, not doing the letter of the law, he's doing the spirit of the law because that's what Yahweh wants his people to imbibe and to reflect. And in this way, he's reflecting the character of God himself. Because in the gospel, the Lord does for us exceedingly more than we think or what we can ask or what we can imagine, Ephesians 3. And so verse 17 tells us the product of the day, how much she made. She gleaned in the field till evening. She beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And um, that's about 22 liters, 6 gallons, uh, which is remarkable. The weight of it might have been 50 maybe even 80 pounds. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know how she brought this all home. Like, this was an incredible amount for her to carry. And so you can just imagine Ruth's enthusiasm, excitement. She's over the moon by what's happened. And she goes to Naomi to tell her what the first day on the job was like. And you can imagine Naomi's curiosity and concern she, you know, she doesn't know if Ruth's going to come back, if she's going to come back abused, assaulted, hurt. But Ruth comes back with an incredible manifestation of grace. She's got an ephah of barley, and Naomi cannot believe it. Where did you glean today? Where have you worked Somebody took notice of you, and blessed be the man that took notice of you. And she is wondering who this man was. And there's sort of this climatic suspense here where kind of she wants the name. And finally, Ruth lets out the name. It's Boaz. It's Boaz. 
And Naomi can't believe that this is what's happened because she knows Boaz. He's our kinsman. He's one of us. He's related to Elimelech. And not only this, Naomi knows that Boaz is a man of reputable character. He's a man of integrity. He is a kind, gracious individual. Of all the fields Ruth could have ventured upon that day, she ends up in Boaz's field. And brothers and sisters, what you need to see here is that, remember this morning we saw a very bitter Naomi? A very callous Naomi? She's changing already here. The mechanics of grace is changing her, and she's beginning to see again that the Lord has not forgotten her. Yes, life has been painful. Life has been hard. But God is not done with her yet. And there's new hope, and there's fresh beginnings. And the Lord is working out his perfect plan in Naomi's and Ruth's life. And so she exclaims, Blessed be the Lord, this is verse 20, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Blessed be God. Earlier, she was maybe just ready to give up on Yahweh. She was so frustrated. The Lord has done all these terrible things in my life. But now she says, blessed be the Lord. The living and the dead were alive, but even Elimelech and my sons, the Lord is, is, is going to perhaps find a way to resurrect this family line, which will go into oblivion. Maybe there's something good that's going to come out of this. See, what happens when you go to the land of covenant promise? You find a redeemer. Brothers and sisters, again, the land of Moab, representing worldliness, the spirit of the age. It might promise you a lot, but it doesn't give you a lasting reward. It's when we live in Emmanuel's land, in God's ways, where that is the only place that true blessing can be found. And Boaz will be the embodiment of this. And so Ruth says in verse 21, he also said to me, you shall stay close by my young men until they have finished the harvest. Again, this grace continues. There's protection. Brothers and sisters, you need to see how quickly things have turned around for these two women. In chapter 1, it feels like the road ahead is only devastation. This is a, a nightmarish situation of deprivation and poverty. The Lord so quickly has granted protection and provision and sustenance. And Ruth isn't over yet. We still have two more chapters. And it's going to get better because the family line will continue. And so little do these, these, these women do not know that Jesus Christ is going to come from their lineage. But this is what God is doing. But I want you to see the character of Boaz. You think of the fruit of the Spirit. What are they? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Boaz exhibits all of these characters. One commentator says, and I quote, This was not the conduct of a legalist who recited creedal shibboleths and advertised his concerns for the boundaries of ethical behavior, but the response of a fundamentally good man guided by the law, and driven by the spirit of the law. 
Boaz was a man who loved the Lord. He was a God-fearing man. And as he knew of God's love for him, as he knew of God's grace toward him, even just realize this is post-famine. Boaz's field has been producing a lot. Boaz knows of the kindness of the Lord. Boaz loves and fears the Lord, and he's able to understand that he, being loved by the Lord, being loved much by the Lord, is called to love much. As God has been gracious with him, he is called to be gracious with others. As God has been generous to him, he is called to be generous with others. As he has received grace, he's called to give out grace. And so, brothers and sisters, what we learn from this man is that our theology needs to match our sociology. What we believe about God, God's grace to us, needs to work itself out in how we are gracious with other peoples in terms of the culture that we create around ourselves. This is in the home, in the church, in the workplace. And Boaz gives us an example of what this looks like. But see, the danger is, even in the church, we can have this legalistic mentality that we, we look at people, we don't know their story, we say, I'm going to treat you like I think you deserve. No better. But that's not how God tells us to treat. Better than they deserve. Because we've been treated better than we deserve. And we don't even know the full story. Brothers and sisters, there's a whole world of hurting people. And we as Canadians in southwestern Ontario, are tremendously blessed. I, I, I don't think we understand fully. Maybe we do, but emotionally really grab on to how unbelievably blessed we are. Physically, our churches, our schools, our communities, our businesses, our spiritual heritage, coming from particular Reformed heritage, which is rich, we have so much to offer. But the danger always is to take these gifts and hoard them. Or to look at others that don't have the same opportunities and have a judgmental view of them and simply don't want to share what God has given to us. And that is the heart of a legalist, where rules are more important than relationship. We simply need to take stock of everything the Lord Yahweh has bestowed upon us and and be willing to share that as the Lord calls us to share it. Because we can be the wings of God to care for the marginalized just like what Boaz was. And isn't it great to be a, a means like Boaz for someone who is hurting and despondent and feels like the end of the road is about to hit. And may the Lord give us this sort of grace. And may the Lord just so enrapture us such a wonder of his kindness toward us. As James, the brother of our Lord, said, this is religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, to care for orphans and widows in their, in, in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, 
You did it for me. Charles Wesley, or John Wesley, sorry, his brother, said this. He says, let me do all the good I can to all the people I can, by all the means I can, as, as often as I can, for I will not pass this way again. Brothers and sisters, let us just thank the Lord for his wondrous benevolence toward us. Let us really understand who we are before the throne of God. And may we be able to take an inventory of all the ways God has treated us better than we deserve. And may we simply be so melted by that love and so changed and transformed by that benevolence that we would see it one of the great privileges of life to be an instrument of grace. Wherever the Lord places us, in our workplace, in the church, in our community, in our homes, the gift is in the giving. And may the Lord give us this desire to be like Christ. Amen. Let's pray.